Yes, sir. Uh, I won't be doing the uh, translation thing that I was doing in the past, like uh, verifying the difference between the French and the English, but I'll try to participate as I work. Uh, please do. Uh, we actually mostly needed you last week, but uh, this week you're free to just join and, and not be our translator. Uh, we ran into some weird wording last week, but we'll, we've got a little bit this week, which is going to be fun as well. So be sure uh, everyone is, is uh, as usual, uh, please be ready to chat uh, in the discussion chat live. Feel free to type whatever you want. We're not doing any rec screen recording this week, but uh, feel free to ask to be unmuted. We'd love to have you join in our discussion of chapter three, section three, the problem of Oedipus. Uh, as always, thank you all for joining. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things, uh, as we begin every week with. Uh, the first is that we've had a couple of uh, volunteers who've had to go back to their real-world lives, which we really respect, but it means we have a few openings. So if anyone wants to uh, help out around the server, uh, general moderation duties, nothing terribly exciting, or if you want to run a group or two, we have a lot of groups popping up around Heidegger, uh, we have our Simondon group uh, still going, and we're looking to be starting uh, Cinema, uh, Cinema 1 and 2 from Deleuze, uh, the end of this week, uh, early next week. Uh, I'd love to run it. I've accepted the fact that I cannot. So if any of you would like to take that over, feel free to message us. We'd love to have you on board. Not a lot of time requirements, mostly just helping out. I uh, also like to send a thanks out, as I will every week, to anyone who helps us out on Patreon. We're getting very close to being able to break even monthly, which would be nice uh, to not have to uh, have this costing us money and maybe even uh, be able to spend a couple bucks on uh, boosting the server up so we can get uh, a couple levels of uh, better audio quality. Because right now, uh, whatever you're hearing this at, it is the best we can do at a technical level. Uh, any other notices or thoughts, uh, Kent, Jack, anyone else in the server, stuff that's going on? Yeah, um, if you haven't already, please be a part of the uh, the literature's, uh, quarantine literature's vote to choose our next test. We currently have a tie right now, so you could be the tie-breaking vote for our discussion on Saturday at noon PDT, and Simone Dunn will be meeting... Sunday at 11 a.m. PDT to continue the discussion of technical objects. We have an ongoing uh, reading of um, Zizek's Looking Awry and also a um, uh, Being in time. basic writings. If you'd like to join, we'd like to have you there. And as always, to join any of our talks, uh, head into the join reading uh, group uh, and you just uh, uh, add by clicking on one of the little emojis. Uh, you add Heidegger, you add Zizek, you add any of those, and it'll give you access to the different uh, reading groups. Uh, we do it to keep the server less cluttered. But for now, I think it's time we move on to the problem of Oedipus. Uh, we were talking right before this about a little bit of what the methodology of this uh, section is going to be. Uh, often we do go straight through, and I think we will do a full reading of this, but uh, I think this section is uh, excessively abstract. Uh, it uses a lot of mythology and terminology, and there's going to be a lot of opinions flying around. Uh, usually we don't really have an issue with a large amount of discourse. 
but we try to keep it focused. I think uh, Varun is right. We are going to do our best to expand that and be very open-minded. So if you have any opinions, any thoughts, uh, no matter how absolutely absurd or insane you may feel they are, please bring them up because this entire section is filled with things that uh, I honestly am not going to be able to uh, understand or explain. So uh, feel free to uh, jump in. I mean, I, I think one of the things we should also keep in mind is that, I mean, part of the beauty with all the things people like Deleuze wrote is that there's a certain level of, uh, I mean, they had a certain level of this idea that it's always about the creation of concepts. And I mean, this whole idea that he, he has this really nice line about taking the author, it's, it's just almost turned into a meme at this point about taking the author behind the back. But I mean, the whole thing to do here is that this is, it, it, it's it's almost experimental work in the sense that it's it's an interpretation at the end of the day, right? I mean, it's it's about it's about it's it's almost about what's more interesting or what 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 does the most amount of things or what has to give some the most amount of potentials at the end of the day. So really, it's it's about finding new possibilities rather than having you know some factual account of how accurate your reading of the lesson guts here are. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to sum it up. So uh, please uh, jump in. Uh, really at any point because every one of these paragraphs has something that I'm just going to be sitting on Wikipedia trying to understand what the meaning of the world egg or Newman or any of these wonderful terminology things really mean in this. So we'll go ahead and uh, begin the reading. Uh, I'll kick it off and then we will just uh, see what we can discover as we go. So join us. The full body of the earth is not without distinguishing characteristics. Suffering and dangerous, unique, universal, it falls back on production, on the agents and connections of production. But on it, too, everything is attached and inscribed. Everything is attracted, miraculated. It is the basis of the disjunctive synthesis and its reproduction. A pure force of filiation or genealogy, Newman. The full body is the unengendered, but filiation is the first character of inscription marked on this body. And we know the nature of this intensive filiation, this inclusive disjunction where everything divides, but into itself, and where the same being is everywhere, on every side at every level, differing only in intensity. The same included being traverses indivisible distances on the full body and passes through all the singularities, all the intensities of a synthesis that shifts and reproduces itself. It serves no purpose to recall that genealogical filiation is social rather than biological, for it is necessarily biosocial in as much as it is inscribed on the cosmic egg of the full body of the earth. It has a mythical origin that is the one, or rather the primitive one too. Should one say the twins or the twin, which divides and unites itself, the nomo or the nomos? The disjunctive synthesis distributes the primordial ancestors, but each member of the primitive community is himself a complete full body, male and female, binding to itself all the partial objects with variations that are solely intensive and that correspond to the internal zigzag of the Dogon egg. Each one intensively repeats the entire gene genealogy for itself, and everywhere it is the same. At both ends of the indivisible distance and on every side, a litany of twins, an intense filiation. At the beginning of Le Renard Pal, Le Renard Pale, I'm Le gonna, Renard Pal. 
Thank you. I'm going to anglicize literally everything. Perfect. That's good. <laughs> uh, Marcel, Gri- Marcel Grial and Germain Dieterlin sketch out a splendid theory of the sign. The signs of filiation, guide signs and master signs, signs of desire, intensive at first, which fall in a spiral and traverse a series of explosions before extending into images, figures, and drawings. All right. So we're going to go ahead and start. Uh, I'll, I'll kick off with my insane uh, lack of understanding of everything that's happening. Uh, to me, a lot of this is them trying to do their best to sum up uh, difference and repetition and a lot of what they brought up there. Uh, just trying to bring it up very quickly, uh, because, again, as we're talking about their feelings on possibility space, on probability, on where we exist inside of everything, it all of this very much brought me back to sort of some of their writings around difference of repetition and other things like that. Anyone? Feel free to tell me where I'm wrong. No, I, th- I think you're right. I think you're right. Because it's bringing back the ontology of oneness. There's one being. And it's just a matter of difference and in intensity into the expression. And also right. when, when they say about the Newman, Newman is the thing in itself in, in Kant. So they make the difference between the thing in itself and, you know, the social aspect of it, which would be the phenomenon. And now everything is constructed there. So they, they sum up a lot of stuff into this little paragraph. And I think you're right on the, your interpretation. So, I mean, with regards to difference and repetition, like in A Thousand Plateaus, when they describe the body without organs in A Thousand Plateaus, they say pretty explicitly that the body without organs in A Thousand Plateaus is... Um, is the virtual on a plane of consistency. And, uh, you know, if, if you guys remember difference and repetition, right, the virtual is the not the possibilities, but the potentials in a certain, you know, system. And it's, it's, it's important not to confuse it with the intensive forces, right? It's, it's, it's not the in- intensity, it's something other than that. And, but I mean, I, I think, I think if we were to co- compare the virtual and the body without organs as described in a thousand plateaus and, the body with our organs here, we, we are describing the same thing to a certain degree. But I think it's important that we cannot reduce the one to the other, that we can't reduce the virtual indifference. I mean, they are all the same concept. I think Buchanan also holds this account that Deleuze is talking about the same thing when he brings up the body without organs and the logic of sense and the body without organs of ATP. But I mean, with regards to difference in repetition, I think it's important we don't reduce one thing to the other. I, I think, in my opinion, I think what he's doing is he—they—they they are uh, they are basically recapitulating everything they've talked about earlier. <clears throat> Essentially, this idea that first of all, uh, the body without organs is created. It's created when there is a production of a disjunction, right? That you know, before the producing product relationship, before there's an identity product relationship in the in the producing process, there's a disjunction that happens for the product identity to be established. Or sometimes there doesn't even need to be a disjunction for the product identity. There's always some. There's always uh, a production of uh, an anti-production that happens, and that anti-production sort of gets recorded on the on the surface of the body without organs. And you know, then then you have a generation of of two types of you have the attracting force of the body without organs, the miraculating force where everything where everything is recorded, or you have the paranoiac force of the body without organs that repulses things. And there's a relationship between attraction and repulsion that builds up. Now it's important to understand that this relationship is not that of a conflict where you know it's a dialectical conflict. They they're pretty anti-Hegelian in that sense, where they say that it's they're both affirmative 
affirmative of each other in the sense that it's a zero on the body with that organ set. Both of these relate to of greater intensity. And essentially that comes down to the production of subjectivity at the end, uh, at, at the last stage of the synthesis. Um, has anyone read uh, The Pale Fox, uh, Le Renard Pale? The, the Pale Fox. I'm just going to say The Pale Fox. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> Perfect. I have I have not uh, actually read it. I tried to find a good PDF of it last night, uh, and it was just not possible. I mean, has, correct me. Has it been translated? Uh, well, no, not that I could find. That's my issue. <laughs> I mean, it's an old book. It's an old book, so I just made the assumption, but it's probably fair. Um, well, we're there. And this uh, thing about the, uh, you know, Gaia was a goddess, and as a goddess, Uranus was um, born from Gaia. And so this dividing into itself, it's almost as if Gaia, um, all of the gods were a division of Gaia. Yeah, to that point, and like the... um the aspect of the earth and like the territorial machine. I, I just wanted to read a few brief passages from um, or sentences from section uh, one of chapter three, just to connect it back there, right? The earth is the primitive savage unity of desire and production. For the earth is not merely the multiple and divided object of labor. It is also the unique indivisible entity, the full body that falls back on the forces of production and appropriates them for its own as the natural or divine precondition. They go on to write, it is the surface on which the whole production, the whole process of production is inscribed, on which the forces and means of labor are recorded, and the agents and the products distributed, as Varun was mentioning. Finally, the territorial machine is therefore the first form of socius, the machine of primitive inscription, the so-called mega-machine, that covers a social field. It is not to be confused with te technical machines. In its simplest so-called manual forms, the technical machine already implies an acting, a transmitting, or even a driving element that is non-human and that extends man's strength and allows for a certain disagreement from it. The, the thing I thought that was kind of interesting about this section, and even as we've been moving through section two, is uh, like Varun said, they're expanding and you know, they keep going back to these concepts to build on them and bring them forward in their thought. But it's also in the sense that, like, uh, right, the earth is the, the primal source of inscription. Uh, in the same way, it's interesting now that they're, they're expanding on the, uh, the concept of filiation. Uh, and affiliation as a biosocial or like that, that interesting way they're folding together the, the, the disjunction, it seems. Uh, recognizing as a zigzag rather than a straight cut, uh, the, the biosocial means of a sort of genealogy. Yeah, I think one of the key things uh, we're going to see here with reference to the Dogon Egg is one thing they've talked about explicitly throughout the first chapter is that um, they talk about the body without organs acting as you know, the divine source of everything, even though it's produced in a certain stage, but it comes to represent almost that primordial stage of production. I think even the mythic culture of the Dog, if, I, I'd, I'd like Brooks to back me up on this, but I think uh, the Dogon egg, in terms of mythic culture, it, it, they genuinely thought it had divine energy of where it would produce its own 
it would it, it everything will be produced from it, right? Yeah. So it's the Dogon egg is uh, okay. So the, the entire concept of sort of the cosmic egg uh, uh, derives from sort of Indo-European religions that have part of the great human diaspora sort of grew everywhere. So they're very similar in a lot of places. This very old concept, uh, the attachment to the Dogon one. Uh, my guess is because uh, The Pale Fox hit a few years before this book was written, probably around the time they started writing it. Uh, and it was a bit of a sensation as they sort of dug into Dogon society. Uh, it was a big treatise at the time. Uh, and as they've done in a lot of the rest of the book, they've talked a lot about other sociologists and anthropologists who've done deep studies at the time. It was a thing that was happening everywhere. Um, but specifically, the, the Dogon egg as a concept, uh, has a lot in it, uh, essentially everything. And it has an innate twinness and divinity because it has a yoke and the, the, the yoke and the white part, albumin, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, they consider these to be sort of the, uh, the two parts of everything and that they are intertwined and that there's a divinity in sort of that innate twinness. Uh, and twinness is a thing they talk about a lot in the Dogen sort of uh, cosmology, however you want to put it, uh, twinness as a thing. And so that's where the, the terms for a lot of this come from. Um, and it's uh, everyone has both sexes inside of themselves. It's how they present differently. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I took a bit of a deep dive into Dogen mythology and uh some of it is, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It has been deeply co-opted by the same uh, honorable way of looking at tribes people, the honorable tribesmen, uh, and how smart they were and how they understood DNA and the aliens contacted them people that a lot of stuff uh, has sort of been co-opted by. But specifically around this and the Dogon Egg, it's, it's about sort of the godly beginning where everything is pure potential and nothing has formed yet, but it actually contains everything that could be formed, at least the, the parts of it. Uh, that's the very short version. It's, there's a lot on, I, I suggest reading up on it. It's actually the Dogon uh, world is fascinating, uh, actually. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so I, so I think that there's also a lot of like, connection here to um early <clears throat> or at least as Deleuze is kind of like pointing to <clears throat> sorry a bit, bit of a loogie in there um uh, a lot of connection to like uh like spinoza here i mean he i mean very deeply connecting a lot of these ideas to um spinoza uh spinoza's ideas of of uh of you know god as uh, as one and then everything's you know uh a um, a branch of uh, Spinoza, either through um, uh, thought or extension, right? So, we, uh, so when we're, uh, so when I'm seeing this, um, I, I'm seeing him, you know, kind of like go, uh, you know, especially in the line should uh, should one say twins or the twin, you know, as uh, as to kind of question, you know, uh, is everything uh, is are all these kinds of structures a part of a singular system or are they? Um, or are they, uh, you know, part, are they parts of, uh, or are they two, you know, is it, it's that fundamental question. Is it, is it monism or is it dualism? Well, 
Uh, I think the well, I think very clearly, um, uh, Deleuze and, and Guattari um, here choose the uh, choose the path of monism, um, and I think it's uh, and I think it's a very I think it's a very um, you know I think I think that's a very uh, you know important part to uh, to kind of see here is the is the kind of direct influence of of Spinoza's work here. Uh, I fully agree with that. And I think as they talk about, uh, specifically with the, when they talk about uh, Dogen culture and the, the way that they teach about the cosmic egg, and this is why it ties into the, is it a twin or the twins? Um, uh, it's the, the way that people are taught to look at the egg is the same. And it, from a, like a religious perspective, because inside of it is uh, everything and one thing it is and an egg, but it is all things. And so it's uh, naturally that sort of concept of multiplicity uh, inside of itself. Uh, and again, uh, we just had someone, people asking on the server earlier this week, uh, the, the term bi-univocal, where it comes from, uh, where else they used it, and the definition, it's very similar to this, the ability for multiple things to speak with a single voice or a schizo to have a single thought, uh, that those moments and those experiences uh, and all of that again, takes me right back to uh, a lot of the sort of revelations I had when I was reading Difference and Repetition, when they're talking essentially about what those lines are between the what the differences are between us and how we view those and how these things sort of come to be. Feels like it. But we should uh, continue reading because they actually get into this a little bit more. Would anyone like to read the next uh, little paragraph here? I'll volunteer. Go for it. If the full body falls back on the productive connections and inscribes them in a network of intensive and inclusive disjunctions, it still has to find again and reanimate lateral connections in the network itself. And it must attribute them to itself as though it were their cause. These are the two aspects of the full body, an enchanted surface of inscription, the fantastic law, or the apparent objective movement, but also a magical agent or fetish, the quasi-cause. It is not content to inscribe all things. It must act as if it produced them. It is necessary that the connections reappear in a form compatible with the inscribed disjunctions, even if they react in turn on the form of these disjunctions. Such is alliance, the second characteristic of inscription. Alliance imposes on the productive connections the extensive form of a pairing of persons, compatible with the disjunctions of inscription, but inversely reacts on inscription by determining an exclusive and restrictive use of these same disjunctions. It is therefore inevitable that alliance be mythically represented as supervening at a certain moment in the filiative lines although in another sense, it is already there from time immemorial. Marcel Grial describes how among the Dagons, something is produced at a certain moment, at the level and on the side of the eighth ancestor, a derailment of the disjunctions, which cease to be inclusive and become exclusive. Once this occurs, there is a dismemberment of the full body, a canceling of twin twinness. A separation of the sets is marked by circumcision, but also a recomposition of the body according to a new model of connection or conjugation. 
an articulation of bodies for and between themselves, a lateral inscription with articulatory stones of alliance, in short, a whole arc of alliance. Alliances never derive from filiations, nor can they be deduced from them. But this principle, once established, we must distinguish between two points of view, the one economic and political, where alliance is there from time immemorial, combining and declining itself with the extended filiative lineages that do not exist prior to alliances in the system assumed to be given in extended form. The other mythical, which shows how the extension of a system takes form and delimits itself, proceeding from intense and primordial filiative lineages that necessarily lose their inclusive or non-restrictive use. From this viewpoint, the extended system is like a memory of alliance and of words, implying an active repression of the intense memory of filiation. For if genealogy and filiations are the object of an ever-vigilant memory, it is to the degree that they are already apprehended in an extensive sense that they certainly did not possess before the determinations of alliances conferred on them. On the contrary, as intensive filiations, they become the object of a separate memory, nocturnal and biocosmic, the memory that indeed must suffer repression in order for the new extended memory to be established. Honestly, um, if anyone else feels like they had a stroke about halfway through, you're not alone. <laughs> this, this is uh, this. The rest of this section is not far off from this paragraph, but this paragraph I think is the worst offender of this. Uh, I genuinely, uh, I genuinely can't make sense of what they're trying to say here. And I read it. I read this after our talk last week. I read this last night. I read it this morning. And then I'm just listening now and my brain kind of disappeared. So, I mean, uh, uh, I, th I think we should just start by like, breaking it down. So, I mean, for the first, like, if you, if you have the Penguin edition on page one at 154 in the, the first part of the paragraph, at least they start talking about uh, that miraculating aspect of, of the body, right? Of, I mean, of the socius in this case, that um, what will happen is it'll it'll record everything and in recording all these disjunctions, it'll multiply their potentials and it'll create a new set of, uh, it'll create a new set of basically signs. Cause what it records are basically a signifying signs, signs don't, that don't signify anything. And what it'll show is that it's, it acts as the quasi causes everything else. And it's that in China, that's why they call it almost mythic, right? It's a numinal in the sense that it's, um, it's basically it acts like it's mystical that everything just comes from it. Everything is so attached, so machinically attached, so close to it, and record onto it that it'll 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 produce everything from itself. That's the first part of it. Yeah, and that's part of that spans on uh, section one where they talk about the mega machine or the um, the mega machine needing to fashion a memory, right? The socius and the the earth, therefore, acting as this inscribing surface that we we sort of refer to in, in our memory right this uh mythology being an instance of that so we see human activity recorded by the earth you know in terms of the i guess the resources used right might be one way we see it or the structures left behind might be another way and then the quasi cause thing 
I think is related to what Varun was saying with the miraculating thing. Where, and then we have to say that the earth was the cause of this, right? Or we don't have to maybe, but we're, we're led to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we, because the earth is the territorializing machine, uh, it appears that all production stems from it in the same way that all production would seem to stem from the body of the organs, right? Because it's I mean, I like the example of Feuerbach's conception of God to explain this because, I mean, so Feuerbach said that uh, man creates God. And I'm not taking the full theory, right? But the full theory is that God for Feuerbach represents man's potential, right? And eventually man will actualize it when, you know, when you get scientific advancement and stuff. But I mean, on the base level of, you know, any atheist conception of God, will see it as sort of like, uh, you know, let's just say it's, it's, the atheist will go and say, oh, God was, we created God. But, um, and so at least that's almost for the Feuerbach, before you complete the whole theory of Feuerbach, he begins with something like that. And we create God, but then God seems to be like the source of everything we are. Yeah, because it's acting as like the body of the organs of the socius, right? So like the disjunctions, things like the male-female get recorded there. And when it falls back on production, that's how you get things like the the male-female, that sort of distinction and all that uh, through the recording and through the recordings and through the recording. Right. Someone's asking about the difference between lines and affiliation. Roger, you want to ask, answer that? I'll let you go. Now you go. <laughs> um, if we if we go with affiliation, affiliation is something that is uh, that would be structural and vertical. So affiliation is something that is passed through um, a predetermined structure. Uh, but alliance is more something out of an exchange. So the economy of the, the of the social, for example, if um, if we take marriage. Um, marriage would be something that is more out of the alliance when, you know, for example, affiliation is passed from one generation to another. This is the simplest explanation I can give about it. In the, in the Western tradition, Gaia is the earth, and she's the primordial goddess, which is usually represented as chaos. And then Gaia gives rise to Uranus from within herself. And then all of the filiation of the gods come from that, uh, uh, you know, the intercourse of Gaia and Uranus. Yeah, and if you want to use the, the Greco myth there as an example, right? Uh, the, the alliance comes in when gods like Zeus or even the Titans start working together to accomplish economic or political items, as Roger was uh, referring to. So like Hera sleeping with Zeus to, to change the course of battle is aligned. Interestingly, Gaia and Uranus gave rise to a generation before the Titans called the Hundred-Handed One and um, the... Um, and the cyclopses, and so and so the first the first uh, reproductive um, uh, alliance gave uh, not alliance but uh, affiliation 
gave rise to these nihilistic extremes of the hundred-handed ones and the cyclops. Um, and you can think of that as uh, coming down to us in uh, coinage and money, because the hundred-handed ones are like the exchange process. And, uh, and, and the cyclops is kind of like the unity of the system as a whole. Well, um, since we're discussing creation myths, I, I do want to recite a little bit uh, when they have the line, Marcel Grell describes how among the Dogons something is produced at a moment at the level and on the side of the eighth ancestor. Uh, the opening of the Dogon creation myth as described to Marcel by Ogotameli, uh, who was uh, the high priest of the Dogons at the time, uh, tells the story, and I'm reading off of Wikipedia, so please forgive anything I say, um, described the ancestor Lebe, uh, uh, who is the eighth ancestor. The, he's the eighth, uh, the old man who descended from the eighth ancestor. His body was buried in the primordial field. When the ringing of a blacksmith's anvil filled the air, the seventh ancestor, who was previously sacrificed, reappeared as the Numo genie, half snake below, half man above. He swam the first dance right up to the old man's grave, entered it, swallowing the body so it could be regenerated, and then vomited a torrent of water. The bones were turned into colored stones and laid out in the form of a skeleton. Later on, where men decided to migrate, they opened Levy's grave and discovered therein the system of stones vomited by the seventh and this genie himself in the form of a snake. From then on, priests wore those stones around their necks. The body of the second sacrificial victim, closely associated with the body of the first, serves as the foundation. Uh, the way that they describe it, and they say that um, uh, the primordial field contained the body of the oldest man of the eighth family and the head of the seventh family under the smith's anvil. And they describe them as one, chanting that they should always be one and never be separated. So. That's a thing. I don't know if that has any fucking relevance to anything we're talking about now that I've read it out loud. I mean, it does in the sense that, right, like, the, the territorial machine is fashioned in this memory that all of this is recorded upon, right? Yes. These, these myths serve as a as a reference point in some sense, but also in the sense that it falls back on production through the socius. Yeah. So we always need to remember the coextensive character of production. So it's, you know, if, if you produce a tool, if you produce a myth, you know, because a myth is an explanatory tool, um, it, it also co-construct you, you know, it constructs you back from its position. So basically, if you produce something, it uh, this this produce uh, thing will come back and you know influence you. And so it's it's it, at the basis of it, you know, that's that's the idea. So basically, that's that's okay. Let's go into anthropology, but we'll we'll see it like after in the text. But this is one big problem that we add into the discipline is to see as a structure as the determining transcendental form that was giving reality. And then, you know, when when Levi Strauss was like uh, elaborating structuralism, this is not what he was saying, but that's what people were getting. But what he was saying is that the myth was actually uh, an expression 
of um, the common relations of people between themselves and with nature. Uh, but at the same time, the myth would, you know, give you either a moral take or um, a set of symbols that would come back and influence the way you interact and the way you uh, entertain your relations. Yeah, I think one thing that I'm struggling with, I mean, you brought up the whole transcendental materialism aspect to it, which I see, I mean, this entire book, see, they, they basically create a transcendental unconscious that works on a material level. <laughs> but um, I think uh, one thing that I'm struggling to understand in this paragraph is specifically, because we are told, like, we return to the paralogisms again in this case of, like, buy-in vocalization and, uh, you know, the... the uh, the the, the, the the use of the, the incorrect use of the syntheses. So I, I'm curious, like, how, how does this work on the level of the socius? Could you say the question again? Right. So, I mean, in, in, in the previous uh, ch- chapter, at least, we were told of all the paralogisms in psychoanalysis, right? For example, uh, one of them is, is the global objects, right? The other one, and these are all incorrect uses, right? Another one is the paralogism of displacement, where you have the that the, the repressing representation of uh, being recorded onto the body without organs, that's the example of the prohibition of incest. Then the other times we have uh, we, we have the bi- bi-univocalization in terms of the conjunctive synthesis. So I'm curious, because it, it all happens in the body without organs for last chapter too, and that's where the paralogism's error. And in this, in, in this case, I wonder how the paralogism's work on the socius itself. All right, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to give it a try. Um, so this this paragraph seems to be discussing how, uh, and I'm going to use the term primitive for lack of a better uh, term. It's what they use a lot. Um, in primitive times, the way that people uh, found their place in things, and very specifically as they're talking about the Dogans, we're talking about the eight families, how the eight families split up, how the Dogans are the members of the eighth, and how they actually trace their filial heritage uh, back that way. But they have alliances at a grander scale. And essentially, he's saying that the, the relations that people have and find uh, in this sort of time period and in this way, uh, they, they exist essentially... Uh, uh, to quote, it is necessary connections reappear in a form compatible with inscribed disjunctions, even if they react in term on the form of these disjunctions, uh, such as alliance. The second characteristic, alliance uh, imposes on the productive connections the extension form pairing of persons compatible with disjunctions of inscription. Uh, the uh, It sounds to me like they're talking about essentially the cycle of primitive man utilizing these mythologies in order to track their locations and their tracings to other people, doing so through this sort of uh, alliances and filiation. And these stories get inscribed and grow, and it's necessary for new myths that come upon that to inscribe themselves and work within uh, those sort of larger scale setups. Uh, If we go back to the Dogon egg as a gigantic possibility space, uh, which is what we sort of started talking about Varun in the previous paragraph. It is pure possibility space. But what they've done, the Dogen specifically, is they've collapsed it down with this mythology, these stories, and suddenly the possibility space is a significant amount smaller. 
And what has happened is that this possibility space, this body without organs, this egg, has fallen back on these inscriptions, has had these stories inscribed upon it. And in order for stories to continue, they have to fit within that story that the next generation of Lebe can't suddenly tell a new entire potentiality. They have to stay within the potential that's already collapsed behind them. Uh, I'm not taking drugs. It sounds like I am. <laughs> well, it's it's the matter of temporality, too, because, you know, the you, if you put temporality into this whole question, you are... In in a way, this this is my inadequate English, but uh, in a way, there's a you are determined by what happened previously. So, being, for example, will always be determined by what happened prior. You can tweak it. You can you can tweak your world. And the myth, for example, is a form of knowledge. So, a form of knowledge is a form of mapping of the world. So, you map the world, and then this mapping of the world will influence you into you know being into that world but at the same time all the changes the recursive changes between uh the present and the past will you know influence being but you cannot like have a complete break so it's always a follow-up of events that are continuing well, and, and, and assembling themselves well, and on that, and i'm going to go ahead and read the next paragraph it's a shorter um and i think it because it talks about specifically uh, the collapsing and need for us to go from one potential to smaller. Um, the I'm just going to read the next paragraph. Uh, we can better understand why the problem does not in the least consist of going from filiations to alliances or of deducing the latter from the former. The problem is one of passing from an intensive energetic order to an extensive system, which comprises both qualitative alliances and extended filiations. Nothing is changed by the fact that the primary energy of the intensive order, the Newman, is an energy of filiation. For this intense filiation is not yet extended, does not yet comprise any distinction of persons, nor even a distinction of sexes, but only pre-personal variations in intensity. Uh, I'm going to stop and mention here because uh, I'm. Uh, it's important to this. Uh, the Dogen creation myth talks about how the reason that there was conflict in the, we'll say, godly pre-time is because uh, there was, the people were born androgynous. Uh, there's no direct translation for it from what I can tell, but essentially people were not born male or female as we know them. Uh, that came to be uh, when the man was made with the jackal, the woman with her four labias. It's a whole thing. But uh, the the original sort of setup is um, the idea of uh, non-sexuality uh, is, is just when they talk here as an energy affiliation, uh, not nor even a distinction of sexes. That's the Dogen egg is about that. It's pre-distinction overall. Uh, only pre-personal variations in intensity taking on the same twinness or bisexuality in differing degrees. There's no way bisexuality is the correct word here. Uh, I'm sorry, Roger, but I'm going to ask you, please, that there's no way bisexuality is the right word. Uh, at least in English, I think that means something that they don't intend. Yeah, it's, it means sort of duosexuality. 
So yeah, in 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 the, the the common language of now, it would be something that is like closer to transsexuality, but not into the identity sense of it. But like the bisexuality is the body containing both sexualities yeah. at the same time. So you're not bisexual as a sexual orientation, but you're containing both you possible both. expressions, yeah, or right. potentials. Um, the signs belonging to this order are therefore fundamentally neuter. Therefore, fundamentally neuter or, uh, or ambiguous, according to an expression employed by Leibniz to designate a sign that can be positive as well as negative. Yeah, I think before we go on, though, to that point, I think one thing that I'd just like to mention is that with regards to the intensive, as it's mentioned here, I think it's pretty clear also here for people coming from like difference in repetition and stuff, we can never... Uh, we can never confuse the intensive with the virtual because like you know something is like like james williams reading of difference in repetition he makes a pretty big mistake in my opinion he com- he puts a sort of similarity between the virtual and the intensive and it, it sort of causes a lot of problems for the aspect of the real right that it almost becomes like the, the virtual is more real than reality itself which is just incorrect right so I mean, we need to be careful that the intensities and the virtual are two different things with regards to the body without organs. It's all this process where the body without organs goes through a series of states as well. Yes, uh, I'm going to continue to read the. Uh, it is a question knowing how, starting from this primary intensity, it will be possible to pass to a system in extension where the filiations will be filiations extended in the form of lineages comprising distinctions of persons and parental appellations. The alliances will be at the same time qualitative relations, which the filiations presuppose as much as vice versa. In short, the ambiguous intense signs will cease to be ambiguous and will become positive or negative. Uh, And it's that last sentence, I think, is actually a lot of what they're talking about, where uh, there is general intensity in signs. Again, intensity comes before uh, the... uh, um, sorry, help me here, Varun. Uh, potential. Potential. Uh, intensity is a thing that exists before potentiality. Potentiality comes next. Once potentiality is set... Well, I, I think, well, but I mean, I think in, 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 in Antiedipus, actually, I mean, what they talk about intensity here, I think intensity comes afterwards, right? Because, I mean, it's only by the relationship between the attraction and repulsion of the potentials on the body without organs do we get to a, do we get to sort of intensive magnitudes and the intensive magnitudes are stuff like you know races are intensities um tribes are intensities um groups are intensities to a certain degree identities are intensities right like uh, becoming woman that's an intensity so i, I think i i'm not i'm not i'm not sure if it's right to make a statement like that actually or i may be wrong though no you're probably right I just, uh, I'm just going to end up making declarative statements throughout this that I think, <laughs> in retrospect, are going to make me look like an asshole. But it's can, the way it works. Can you say it again a bit slower? <laughs> no. Varun. <laughs> oh, no. So what you're talking about was that, um, I mean, I think, so at least the way they use the term intensity here, I mean, it's the aspect of the schizo 
the schizo is, you know, the schizo is becoming woman because he identifies with the atten- the intense feeling of feeling like a woman, right? Or the, um, it's 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 the identity idea of affectivity, right? The idea of identifying with affectivity, like so that's why intensities are races, intensities are, um, intensities are groups in that sense. But with regards to what Brooks's comment, I, I think the, we need to understand that it's 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 a three part stage of production, where um, it's after the development of a body without organs, uh, relationship between attraction and repulsion, uh, do we get to a state of, of intensities, and that has to do with the celibate machine. So I, I think there is a certain level of order that's been placed here. Yeah, I think Dionysian waves. I, I think I agree with the model that Dionysian waves gave. I think. Uh, I, yeah, a form of order, but I would not say something that is linear in the sense that there's always a difference between the virtual and the actual. And um, there's, you know, you need to pass from one to the other. So basically, there's going to be potential intensity into the expression of the potential. And this expression passes into possibles and into the actual. So, and then, you know, it's a recursive kind of thing. So I, you know, that's just a quick sketch. It's not an accurate one, but, you know, helps us to separate the terms and see how they interact. Um, I'm going to continue to read. I think um, as I go, I will pause on occasion throughout this next paragraph. Uh, if anyone has a moment and wants to interject, don't hesitate to stop me. A lot of the rest of this is very dense and is going to require us to have some conversations I think in the middle of paragraphs around, uh, for example, why did Levi Strauss spend so much time talking about cousins having sex and children? Yeah, which I think is a thing worth talking about, but uh, it's there's just a lot of things like that. Um, so I'll go ahead and I'll give it a read. Feel free to dive in. Uh, this may be seen clearly in a passage from Levi Strauss explaining for the simple of marriage, the prohibition of parallel cousins, and the approbation of cross-cousins. Each marriage between two lines, A and B, bears a positive or negative sign. According to whether this couple results from a woman being lost to or acquired by line A or B. In this regard, it is not important whether the regime of filiation is patrilineal or matrilineal. In a patrilineal or patrilocal regime, for example, Related women are women lost. Women brought in by marriage are women gained. Each family descended from these marriages thus bears a sign, which is determined for the initial group by whether the children's mother is a daughter or a daughter-in-law. The sign changes in passing from the brother to the sister, since the brother gains a wife while the sister is lost to her family. But, as Levi Strauss remarks, one also changes signs in passing from one generation to the next. It depends upon whether, from the initial group's point of view, the father has received a wife or the mother has been transferred outside, whether the sons have the right to a woman or owe a sister. Certainly, in real life, this difference does not mean that half the male cousins are destined to remain bachelors. However, at all events, it does express the law that a man cannot receive a wife except from the group from which a daughter, from which a woman can be claimed, because in the previous generation a sister or a daughter was lost. 
Well, a brother owes a sister, or a father, a daughter, to the outside world if a woman was gained in the previous generation. A pivot couple, formed by a man married to B woman, obviously has two sides, according to whether it is envisioned from the viewpoint of A or that of B, and the same is true for children. It is now only necessary to look at the cousin's generation to establish that all those in relationship, positive-positive or negative-negative, are parallel to one another, while all those in the relationship, positive-negative or negative-positive, are cross. So, uh, Varun, you mentioned the, the paralogisms earlier. One thing that stuck with me about that is the role of, like, the syllogism the second syllogism and its connection with commandment, as opposed to the second syllogism and its commandment with law. And so as we're reading this, it seems to me that we're talking about like a non-capitalist, a society without a capitalist social machine. And the way that, um, to me, this seems to be balancing between the socius of the earth and even then going towards like the socius of like how the society gets structured. Right, and there's one way in which it references the earth, but uh, here it seems to me they're talking about the society and the laws that occur, and those laws and their relationship to the socius would seem to be like kind of. Um, I think in some ways there might be a paralogism there. I think you're right that there might be a paralogism there, but I think for me at least, what I got from this paragraph that was maybe more important was that this is an example of them sort of walking through the process of how this intensive numinous flow is sort of disambiguated into these structures and that like like what they say in a couple paragraphs from now the ascent uh, the essential is not that the signs change according to the sexes and the generations right so what's important about this example isn't particular the mechanics of you know marriage particularly but that one passes from the intensive to the extensive that is to say from an order of ambiguous signs to an order of signs that are changing but determined what they're talking about here is a binary um progression and the permutations of the binary progression that goes 2 4 8 16 32 64 and i'd just like to note that the uh in seminar 11 of Lacan, he he says that is what sexuality is, that progressive bisection and its permutations. And I think they're trying to get at the same thing here. And to the point about the signs, I believe the, I believe what they say is the signifier is the paralogism of the third synthesis, whereas the point sign is the syllogism of it. And you can see how they're dealing with signs here. So I, I guess we, I might back up in my comment about paralogism, but I do think we can start to walk those syntheses into this, this means of territorializing, right? Because I think that's kind of what Varun's question was getting at, is how do the syntheses engage with territorializing? Uh, can you remind me of the second synthesis again, just for clarity? It, it has to do with global persons? Uh, the paralogism or the syllogism? Both. Okay, so, I mean, I, th I think the, the second the second paralogism, wait, I have some notes, I was trying to bring them up, can be a second. 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 so the second, so the correct, uh, the correct use of the second synthesis is that of uh, um, inclusive uh, disjunction. So it's something like either or, 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 rather than either or, right? So you have that process, the either or, or, which is, and it's not dialectical. It's not that the one negates the other. And so, I mean, the illegitimate use is something like the double bind, right? So it's an ex exclusive and restrictive use rather than an inclusive and non-restrictive use. And it acts as a sort of like the phallus, for example, asks as a despotic signifier on the code of the body without organs. And so, you know, it's, it's the cure rather than the disease that it's, it's the double bind that, it, it, that, you know, you, there's no desirable outcome to the Oedipus complex that sort of uh, binds uh, the subject in this case on body with organs. Okay. Yeah. So that definitely is something that they're talking about here. Right. Because in, in a couple pages, they go on to say something like, uh, the signs cease to be ambiguous, and at the same time, they are determined in relation to the extended filiations and the lateral alliances. The distinctions become exclusive restriction, restrictive. It seems like they're just walking out the process of how that's happening, and that this Levi-Strauss thing is an example of one particular way that this process is happening. Yeah, and I think that's the territorializing machine. And, and because that sounds like, like you said, exclusive disjunction, but also sounds like law versus commandment, that's why I'm thinking they might be talking about, like, I wonder if, I wonder how a territorial machine would, would do the syllogism rather than the paralogism, would create a commandment rather than a law. That is an interesting question. And I think... It would be fruitful to talk about it on the review, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so too. It's going to take us way out of this uh, this paragraph. Yes, yeah. yes, it will. I'm going to actually read the next short paragraph because I think it flows through what you guys are talking through, and then uh, I'll pass to someone else for the next one after. Uh, but once the problem is put in this way, it is less a question of applying a logical combinative apparatus governing an interplay of exchanges, as Levi Strauss would have it, than one of establishing a physical system that will express itself naturally in terms of debts. It seemed to, seems to us very significant that Levi Strauss himself invokes the coordinates of a physical system, although he sees this as nothing more than a metaphor. In the physical system in extension, something passes through that is of the nature of an energy flow, positive-negative or negative-positive. Something does not pass or remain blocked, positive-positive or negative-negative, and something blocks or, on the contrary, causes passage, something or someone. In this system, in extension, there is no primary affiliation, nor is there a first generation or an initial exchange, but there are always and already alliances, at the same time as the filiations are extended, expressing both what must remain blocked in the filiation and what must pass through in the alliance. Uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, move on. Anyone? Anyone? Uh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, a lot of what they're talking about through this is about the moment uh, from sort of the creation of everything, because they're talking about the Dogen egg. Uh, and again, talking through marriages, talking through patrilineal and matrilineal 
orders of things and how everything moves on in the situations we're in. But I think a lot of it is tied back to uh, what we've been talking about in all the other side discussions here that uh, before we arrived, these machines were already working and they'll be working long after we're dead, that there is no uh, moment where I'm disconnected from it, that these things have existed sort of since the uh, primordial, uh, the primordial ground where the eighth ancestor was buried. Yeah, and in the same way, the societies that Levi Strauss and these others were studying in the fifties, and that you can you can see this stuff there, right? Yes, I think that just continues to push into. Uh, if someone wants to give a right read to the next paragraph, anyone? Okay, I'll go. I haven't read in a while. The essential is not that the signs change according to the sexes and the generations, but that one passes from the intensive to the extensive. That is to say, from an order of ambiguous signs to an order of signs that are changing but determined. It is here that resorting to myth is indispensable, not because the myth would be transposed or even an inverse representation of real relations in extension, but because only the myth can determine the intensive conditions of the system, the system of production included, in conformity with indigenous thought and practice. That is why a text of Marcel Grial's, which looks to myth for a principle that would explain the avunculate, seems decisive to us and seems to avoid the reproach of idealism that usually greets this kind of attempt. We have a similar view of the recent article in which Adler and Cartree return to the question. These authors are right in remarking that Levi Strauss's kinship Adam, with its four relationships, brother-sister, husband-wife, father-son, Maternal uncle, unc maternal uncle, sister's son, presents itself as a ready-made whole from which the mother, as such, is strangely excluded, although, depending on the circumstances, she can be more or less a kinswoman or more or less an affine in relation to her children. Now, this is indeed where the myth takes root. The myth that does not express but conditions. As Griot relates it, the Urugu, breaking into the piece of the placenta he has stolen, is like the brother of his mother, with whom he is united by the fact this individual went away into the distance, carrying with him a part of the nourishing placenta, which is to say a part of his own mother. He saw this organ as his own and as forming a part of his own person in such a way that he identified himself with the one who gave birth to him. She was the matrix of the world, and he considered himself to be placed on the same plane as she from the viewpoint of generation. He senses unconsciously his symbolic membership in his mother's generation and his detachment from the real generation of which he is a member, being, according to him, of the same substance and generation as his mother. He likens himself to a male twin of his genetrix. And the mythical rule of the union of two paired members proposes him as the ideal husband. Hence, in his capacity as pseudo-brother to his genetrix, he should be in the position of his maternal uncle, the designated husband of this woman. Could you repeat that? You're getting incest in full force. That's how I read that. I think this is, they're going to go on to say that this is prior to incest, right? Because they're going to go on to say that incest is impossible. Mm-hmm. But in, in you know in in relation to the taboo of um, of marriage and uh, how Levi Strauss was uh, interpreting those relationships, you know, it goes back to this. Okay, that's fair. 
and you can kind of see like a, a nomadic quality here, right? Like you can see the subject passing through these relations. Yeah, that's what I got from it. That this is a sort of, this is a sort of uh, myth that is like a, like a, a sort of gesture towards that. You know, what they use the word like this side of and the other side of right that this myth sort of gestures towards the other side of an in of an intensive relationship with the family that is prior to these extensive forms that it takes but it does go in a way that's like critical or like you know it's it's this is a nightmare but and like roger said right there's a, a means where myths hold knowledge and are explanatory and then there's a way that they hold us right so we're delusing watery right now this is indeed where the myth takes root the myth that is i'm sorry the myth that does not express but conditions like he said kind of alluding to too there's a way that there's kind of a prescriptive element here this seems to be like the socius conditioning um production yeah, yeah exactly I think that- Exactly, because you know, there's a there's a taboo as a a negative uh, rule or law that tells you you cannot do this, and there's also you know this is where uh, the whole theory of exogamy uh, comes in into Levi Strauss. But at the same time, uh, if you if you look at the the other side, you know, there's a there's a necessity of reciprocity. So when you inherit. Um, uh, a wife, you are in the obligation of reoffering your daughter to the other group. So it's 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 a general economy of sexuality. So basically, if you know, um, if you explain by a myth how this is being broken, as the son will go back to his mother, taking the position of the maternal brother. Uh, it breaks the system. It breaks the rule. So basically, that's how the taboo is being uh, enforced into the myth and the story. Yeah, and you can see like there's the filial distinction, right? The dis- the vertical disjunctions, but kind of like he's saying too. There's also the alliance where like the economics and political factors lead to ways that that gets disturbed, but also no less recorded. Doubtless, all the dramatist personae will be found to come into play from this point on. Mother, father, son, mother's brother, son's sister. But it is evidence, evident and striking that these are not persons. Their names do not designate persons, but rather the intensive variations of a vibratory spiraling movement, inclusive disjunctions, necessarily twin states through which a subject passes on the cosmic egg. Everything must be interpreted in intensity. The egg and the placenta itself, swept by an unconscious life energy, susceptible to augmentation and diminution. The father is in no way absent, but Ama, the father and genitor, is himself a high-intensive part, imminent to the placenta, inseparable from the twinness, which relates him to his feminine part. And if the Yorugu son carries away a part of the placenta in his turn, it is in an intensive relationship with another part that contains his own sister or twin sister. But, aiming too high, the part he carries away makes him the sister of his mother, who eminently replaces the sister and to whom he becomes united by replacing Emma. In short, a whole world of ambiguous signs included divisions and bisexual states. 
I am the son, and also my mother's brother and my sister's husband and my own father. Everything rests on the placenta, which has become the earth, the unengendered, the full body of anti-production where the organs, partial objects of a sacrificed gnome, are attached. It is because the placenta, as a substance common to the mother and the child, a common part of their bodies, makes it such that these bodies are not like cause and effect, but are both products derived from the same substance, in relation to which the son is his mother's twin. Such is indeed the axis of the Dogon myth related by Graal. Yes, I have been my mother, and I have been my son. It is rare that one sees myth and science saying the same thing with such great distance. The Dogen narrative develops a mythical Wisemanism, where the germinative plasma forms an immortal and continuous lineage that does not depend on bodies. On the contrary, the bodies of the parents as well as the children depend on it. When the distinction between two lines, the one continuous and germinal, but the other discontinuous and somatic, it alone being subjected to a succession of generations, T.D. Lysenko employed a naturally Dogen tone, turning it back against Wiseman to reproach him for making the son the genetic and germinal brother of the mother. The Morganist medallions following Wiseman start from the idea that the parents are not genetically the parents of their children, are to believe their doctrine, parents and children, brothers and sisters. <sighs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, I, it, this feels like just more of the same concept of the subject moving between intensities, signs, uh, sort of inside of the cosmic egg as the subject sort of passes along all of these different places, talking about the overall relations we have, alliance and affiliation that are sort of determined by us, but how they don't necessarily mean uh, hyper-separation. No? Yeah, because it's coextensive. And when they when they place the placenta at the middle, uh, you you only become a son um, when you are born. This is obvious. But you only become a mother the moment you actually produce a child. So uh, this this there's the coextensive event there that is from the diagram that creates uh, the symbolic order or the symbolic attribution of bodies. So that's why they say it's not from bodies, but it's the diagram that produces the bodies and the symbolic that is attached to them. Yeah, and the placenta being the thing that connects them in Dogen myth, uh, the placenta plays a heavy part uh, between even the, the father, the great father Ama, um, uh, is, is part of the placenta and it is shared amongst his children. It's a Again, it's a really interesting sort of creation myth, one that's really sort of uh, spread around. Um, but I mean, it's simple fact. I was not alone until literally the moment Dexter was born. He was prior to that, as much as we may have called him. Not that the terms have certain meanings. The creation of one glitchy was in the creation of others. I think you're in a dead zone. Come back, Brooks. Oh, no. <laughs> Come in, Brooks. Brooks. I think the body without organs uh, 
can't handle Brooks's inscription. <laughs> oh, okay, we lost Brooks. Um, hey, he turned so, his voice into a decoded flow. Yes, yeah, something we go. worth uh, remembering is that Christiva um, talks about the placenta as being abject. And so it it has the kind of status of these anamorphic objects that Lacan and Zizek talk about. See, that's interesting, because when I read, everything rests on the placenta, which has become the earth, the unengendered, the full body of anti-production, where the organ, organ's partial object of a sacrifice no more attached. It sounds like the placenta is, is the body of our organs, is the socios. And, like, that's an interesting way of dealing with myth, right? Because, like, you have the inscription almost referring to the socius, right? Like, what's being written on the, the socius is also referring to the socius. So something that's always kind of interests me is, you know, if uh, Dasein is prior to subject and object, but Dasein is closer to the subject than the object, then what is the thing which is closer to the object, which is at the same level of Dasein? And I, I call that an eject. And the example that I can think of of that is the placenta, because the placenta, when the, when, when the, when the child is born, the placenta, Placenta is ejected and then becomes, according to Christiva, abject. And so there hasn't been much thought about the, uh, you know, what is the, uh, you know, Heidegger doesn't talk about what is the object equivalent to at the Dasein level. And so, but the placenta is a really good example of something because it's something that's close to uh, the, the child but then is taken away when they're born. So would the placenta be considered an articulation? Because it creates a, the link between the mother and the child, right? So I don't know if I'm cutting, my computer is acting up, so. Well, it's interesting that the placenta in most cultures is buried. Because mm -hmm. if you look with animals, uh, most mammals, uh, the mother will eat the placenta. Straight up, you know, but in the in the human uh, species and, and the specific human cultures, there is a taboo to eating the placenta, and we call this like a placenta phagy, I think, you know, the act of eating the placenta. Um, now it's being like under science, and people are looking at it, and but it's a, uh, it's it's the. I don't know. It's it, we we need to go into the different anthropological understanding. This is I'm not well vested into that area, but um, there's an element of divinity into giving birth and uh, some kind of discontinuity between between the mother and the child. So, what role is the placenta taking into each of cultures, and how it is being um, out? Uh, attributed symbolic uh, symbolically, so eating the placenta would be reinvesting uh, 
the connection in some way or so it, it really depends on the culture i think and um, that would be interesting to see how different cultures are seeing the the act of disposing or or eating the placenta as an act of separation or of connection yeah i believe in most cultures it's like a remainder that is returned to the earth Mm-hmm. But but that that makes it very much like these anamorphic objects. What's an example? Uh, can you explain that? Sorry. What's a xena? What how did you call that? An anamorphic object. Oh, oh I said the word remainder. Zizek and Lacan talk about remainder. Talk about uh, anamorphic objects as remainders. They're usually seen as a spot or a blot that, from a particular point of view, looks like something, but otherwise just looks like something ana- uh, amorphous. And they're talking about amorphousness here. Would anyone like to read the next paragraph about incest? Oh, no, it's what it is. But the next paragraph is where we start getting in on it. I'll volunteer. All right, Jack, let's do it. <laughs> if I can maintain a straight face. <laughs> that sounds um, weird. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, there's, this, this paragraph's awkward. That's, this paragraph's just awkward. If I can maintain the straight face, we'll give it a shot. But the son is not somatically his mother, mother's brother and twin. That is why he cannot marry her, bearing in mind that we said earlier to the, be the meaning of so-called that is why. The one who should have married the mother was therefore the maternal uncle. The first consequence of this is that incest with the sister is not a substitute for incest with the mother. But on the contrary, the intensive model of incest is a manifestation of the germinal lineage. Then again, Hamlet is not an extension of Oedipus, an Oedipus to the second degree. On the contrary, a negative or inverse Hamlet is primary in relation to Oedipus. The subject does not reproach the uncle for having done what he himself wanted to do. He reproaches him for not having done what what he the son could not do. And why didn't the uncle marry the mother, his somatic sister? Because he must not except in the name of this germinal filiation, marked by ambiguous signs of twinness and bisexuality, according to which the son could have done it as well, and could have been himself, this uncle, in an intense relationship with the mother twin. The vicious cycle of the germinal lineage, the primitive double bind. Neither can the uncle marry his sister, the mother, nor from the moment can the son marry his own sister, the Urogo female twin will be delivered over to the Nalmos as a potential affine. The somatic order causes the whole intensive scale to collapse again. Actually, if the son cannot marry his mother, it is not because he is somatically from a different generation. Arguing against Malinowski, Levi-Strauss has demonstrated convincingly that the mixing of generations was not in the least feared as such and that the incest prohibition could not be explained in this manner. This is because the mixing of the generations in the son-mother case has the same effect as their correspondence in the case of the uncle-sister. That is, it testifies 
to one and the same intensive germinal filiation that must be repressed in both cases. In short, a somatic system and extension can constitute itself only insofar as the filiations become extended correlatively to lateral alliances that become established. It is through the prohibition of incest with the sister that the lateral alliance is sealed. It is through the prohibition of incest with the mother that the filiation becomes extended. There we find no repression of the father, no foreclosure of the name of the father. The respective position of the mother or father as kin or affine, the patrilineal or matrilineal character of the filiation, and the patrilineal, I'm sorry, the patrilateral or matrilateral character of the marriage are active elements of the repression and not objects to which the repression is directed. It is not even the memory of filiation in general that is repressed by a memory of alliance. It is the great nocturnal memory of the intensive germinal filiation that is repressed for the sake of an extensive somatic memory created from filiations that have become extended, patrilineal or matrilineal, and from the alliances that they imply. The entire Dogon mythology is a patrilineal version of the opposition between the two genealogies and the two filiations in intensity and in extension, the intense germinal order and the extensive regime of the somatic generations. So the reason I don't have sex with my mom and give birth to a child is because I need to continue the lineage. And the only way to do that is to extend the generation down. If I fuck my mom, it doesn't extend the generation. And conversely, the same in the same way, if I fuck my sister, uh, it doesn't extend our family laterally. And the only way that these kind of things work is if uh, they ex are able to extend in, in both directions. No? Yes. So that, that comes back to the economy of sexuality. So if you take smaller groups that are more traditional, you know, with the more rudimentary uh, mode of reproduction in the sense that, you know, uh, being able to reproduce themselves physically into the world, like eating and like producing and doing everything that they want to do, you need to connect to others. You need to make bridges with other groups. So to extend peace and not generalized war. So that's, that comes back to this. I'm, I'm putting it into a different terms. They, they put it into the terms of uh, the somatic, the dream, and the desire, but the, there's practical elements to this. Part of the, this is seen in, for instance, Egyptian, um, the, the, the pharaonic system, where the brothers and sisters normally married each other to keep the power within the family. And the... Uh, the key to becoming a pharaoh was to marry the sister. So even if you were uh, not from the filial line, if you could marry the sister of the uh, the dead pharaoh, then you could become pharaoh. So the sentence I'm trying to wrap my brain around because it feels like the one that is, I don't know, the most, if, if there's an anchor to this, uh, the uh in short a somatic system and extension can constitute itself only insofar as the filiations become extended correlatively to lateral alliances that become established ah anyone please help me there 
first let's first step let's... back because I'm going to ask the question that I, I'm certain someone listening is going to. Uh, can someone give an easy definition of somatic and what we're contrasting it against here? Somatic relates to the body, if I understand it correctly. So somatic meaning almost like a material level, a, a material system and extension can constitute itself insofar only as the affiliations become extended. Uh, why? What does it constitute itself? I don't understand what that means. A system of bodies can only constitute themselves if the family line is ex is brought out into a system, is how I sort of read that. So, like, that, that's them saying that these, like, filiative lines aren't these transcendent structures that just exist in the sort of, I guess, primordial consciousness of humanity. They're articulated in a particular way. And then the, that, the, that articulation has, like, a goal at the end of the day, which is, like, I think the sort of memory, the sort of production of memory on the territorial machine and the territorial, like, that's, that, I think that's where they're going. Okay. All right. Um, any other thoughts? I'm going to go ahead and give a read to the next paragraph. Um, but. All right. I'm just going to think I think it will give you more answers on this. Yeah, it's it's and I, I read this. I've read this twice in the last 24 hours, uh, this whole section. And it's I know there are later answers that are questions, but my brain can't remember them. And I'm. Because it's, I'm, it feels like I'm just have brain cells gasping for air. Um, you know, you know, one of the one of the things that he's trying to get here is get at here is to say that this the name of the father is not important in the way that Lacan says it is, and that Lacan just didn't know enough about uh, matriarchal system, you know, uh, matrimonial and kinship systems. Well, and I think that's that's actually the next paragraph. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it, and let's uh, pick that back up. Um, the system in extension is born of the intensive conditions that make it possible, but it reacts on them, cancels them, represses them, and it allows them no more than a mythical expression. The signs cease to be ambiguous at the same time they are determined in relation to the extended filiations and the lateral alliances. The disjunctions become exclusive, restrictive, the either-or else replaces the intense either or or the names the appellations no longer designate intensive states but discernible persons discernibility settles on the sister and the mother as prohibited spouses the reason is that persons with the names that now designate them do not exist prior to the prohibitions that constitute them as such mother and sister do not exist prior to their prohibition as spouses Robert Jowlin says it well. The mythical discourse has its, as its themes the passage from indifference to incest to its prohibition. Implicit or explicit, this theme underlies all the myths. It is therefore a formal property of this language. We must conclude that, strictly speaking, incest does not and cannot exist. We are always on this side of incest in a series of intensities that is ignorant of discernible persons, or else beyond incest in an extension that recognizes them, that constitutes them, but that does not constitute them without rendering them impossible as sexual partners. One can commit incest only after a series of substitutions that always moves us away from it. That is to say, with a person who is equivalent to the mother or the sister, 
only by virtue of not being either. She who is discernible as a possible spouse. Such is the meaning of preferential marriage, the first incest that is permitted. But it is not by chance that this kind of marriage rarely occurs, as though it were still too close to the non-existent impossible. For example, the preferential Dogon marriage with the uncle's daughter, she being equivalent to the aunt, who is herself equivalent to the mother. Um, I, I think one of the things that we're getting here is essentially the fact that we're saying first. So uh, one of the things is that it's a social condition, and a social condition has moved the fundamental aspect of desiring production into a specific mode of existence or a mode of being itself. Yeah, I think that says that says it well. So uh, it's the case that you have these representations. I mean, the whole point of where flows and desire gets moved along, right, in certain <coughs> cases or these break flows get put into certain situations or certain um, scenarios, it's the case of a representation at work. And at least in the, we have all these representations of identities and stuff that come to bear. So I, I mean, it's a sense that uh, desire and production at the primordial level creates all this stuff. But you know, we created in a weak mode a social organization, and that form of social organization works a representation back on the intensive property to create a sort of, you know, the, the either or else disjunction rather than the nomadic I am everyone, I was everyone sort of thing. Yeah, and in that way, right, like, because we've been talking about like the territorial machine and that. It doesn't seem like that's entirely the territorial machine's fault here. I think this actually goes back to recapitulation of social repression and psychic repression. You know, the idea that it becomes, so that's what it was, that's what I actually desired. And I mean, the case is that social repression, it, 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 I mean, the whole aspect of psychic repression, psychic repression is, is there, it causes us to desire more social repression, at least in the schema that Deleuze and Gattari have sort of advocated out. But where psychoanalysis put a privacy but in psycho in psychic repression, you know, they take Reich, inspired by Wilhelm Reich, they take the notion that, no, it's social repression, that's the primacy. Well, they are dealing with the family here, right? Which is the agent of those two repressions. Well, I'm actually, on that note, I think um, that would anyone like to read the next paragraph? Because I think we're going to start getting into literally this discussion, especially as it relates to the real and the symbolic order and Lacan. I, I, I mean, there's a lot that happens in the next two paragraphs that are very much referential to the psychoanalytic side of things. Uh, would anyone like to read those? Uh, read at least the next one. I'm happy to. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, no, no, no you, it's you. It's you. Okay, Trust right. me. I'm happy to have you do it. Okay. But I don't know how to say uh, Grials, but Grials, Grials' article is without doubt the text most profoundly inspired by psychoanalysis in the whole of anthropology. Yet it leads to conclusions that cause the whole of, a, the whole of Oedipus to shatter, because it is not content to prose the problem in extension, thereby assuming its solution. They, these are the conclusions drawn by Adler and Cartree. 
It is customary to consider incestuous relations in myth either as the expression of the desire or the nostalgia for a world where such relations would be possible or would meet with indifference, or as the expression of a structural function of the inversion of the social rule, a function destined to found a function destined to found the prohibition and its transgression in both instances one takes as something broad in both instances one takes as something already constituted what is in fact the emergence of an order that the myth narrates and explains in other words one reasons as if the myth placed on the stage persons defined as father mother brother and sister whereas those these roles belong to the order constituted by the prohibition incest does not exist incest is a pure limit provided that two false beliefs concerning the limit are avoided one that makes the limit a matrix or an origin as though the prohibition proved that the thing was first desired as such another that makes the limit a structural function as though the supposedly fundamental relationship between desire and law were manifested in transgression it is necessary to recall once more that the law proves nothing about an original reality of desire because it essentially disfigures the desired, and that the transgression proves nothing about the, a functional reality of the law because far from being a mockery of the law, it is in itself derisory in relation to what the law prohibits in reality, the reason why revolutions have nothing to do with transgressions. In short, the limit is neither a this side of nor a beyond. It is the boundary line between the two, incest, that slandered shallow stream always crossed already or not yet crossed for incest is like this motion it is impossible and it is not impossible in the same sense that the real would be impossible but quite the contrary in the sense that the symbolic is now oh, jesus christ okay uh, let's try to break it down a little bit because i think um there's a lot in this and then the next paragraph and i we have a couple more pages to get through i'd love to try to bust through um so let's let's start where do we even start um <sighs> uh, if, if you're looking for a spot one of the things that jumped out to me was in other words one reason i'm sorry in other words one reasons as if the myth placed on the stage persons defined as father mother brother and sister whereas these roles belong to the order constituted by the prohibition incest does not exist i think that's really interesting because i, I think there is a, a tendency to try to put the prohibition before the myth or at least i think there's confusion about whether the prohibition precedes the myth or whether the prohibition is expressed by the myth well and that's the line that they have there where they say uh, incest is pure limit one that makes the limit a matrix or an origin as though the prohibition proved that the thing was first desired as such. Another that makes the limit a structural function as though the supposedly fundamental relationship which was between desire and law were manifested in this transgression. Uh, yeah, I think this kind of speaks to what Jerome was talking about in terms of social and psychic repression too, where like this recording on the, the socius, this... Um, this inscription, this myth, there's a, I think part of the problem occurs when something, when the new myth is trying to come into being, when new inscriptions are occurring, when desiring is acting revolutionary, and that, that old myth gets repressed. 
Right. Yeah. I think I don't know. In the case of genealogy, at least, I mean, you'll notice it's 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 it's. I mean, the reading of genealogy is very Foucault, right? It's contingencies rather than a linear stage of history. They're looking at these specific develops the developments that differentiate itself from other developments. And the case, sorry, the case with regards to the um, Oedipus aspect. I mean, so I I, I think it's. It's it's the prohibition that causes the myth in this case. That the prohibition w- weighs it down. But you know, then something appears as the divine source as everything else. But the myth appears as the divine source of everything else, which is actually not the prohibition. And then you get the sort of confusion of what you know what's actually happening. And that it seems like the prohibition enters the scene so as to repress the myth, but also to inscribe upon it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the prohibition thing is that the prohibition is recorded on the socius itself. Yeah, and, and that's where they said earlier something to the effect of like, there's there's this problem where writing new myth or continuing a myth or what have you, doing that inscription work on the socius requires a sort certain repression of the myth that's there. So like, you kind of get this in like, you know, the, the Greco-Roman poets, right, trying to deal with myth and there's all these ways that they um, they sort of like disjoint from one another. They, they change the myths. And then like, that's kind of how people read them in hindsight is like, do they not know about it? Were they trying to do something different? And in this sense, we might say, did they repress a part of the myth? Well, I, I would, one of the things that jumped out at me is the sentence, uh, the reason why revolutions have nothing to do with transgressions. Uh, the sentence before talks about the idea that the functional reality of law is so massive, is so extraordinary, that transgression is so minute in, in comparison to the power of that, in the same way that they talk earlier about incest itself, uh, the prohibition being something that uh, inside of basically creating the rule, we've disfigured uh, the desired. We've We've actually transmogrified the shape of things in such a way it's the it's the false image essentially yes and so because of that i don't know it just makes me think of uh, everything that's happening right now if uh, if you're not in america it's, it's a fun time um but there are people talking through the old uh rules around how policing needs to work as an ex- just as an example um, and the way people look at these things as though they always have been, when in reality, modern policing is something that only exists really in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, or even shorter than that. Um, but it's so endem- endemic uh, to Americans' way of life and the way we perceive ourselves that the law itself and the, the laws that we have have disfigured things so greatly changed the shape that you can't even transgress to have it become a revolution feels feels in line with that mentally with me Not sure it, it, it's a dip, it's a, a displaced um desire that acts as a signified yes yes i like that displaced desire that acts as a signified well well like the uh, the the real desire is 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 probably the referent right in this case for Well, and I oh, fuck, I'd love them to be alive right now. I mean, uh, I'm fun to always bring this up, but uh, I mean, anyone who's been on a porn site in the last five years knows that incest is the hottest thing in the world right now, pretty much globally. 
And so I just would love, there's got to be something there that they would love to have a comment on that. Like stepsister porn being that uh, not the mother, not the sister, sort of okay. Uh, like, Jesus Christ, uh, you can't get away. It's been there. How do I know that? Because I'm, I'm a dude. Are you kidding me? Sorry. I'm, I, I have uh, Rick and Morty jokes about it. Fuck off, you people. I think there's a really good line about that in the next paragraph, I think. Oh, good. Hey, I remember just I was laughing about it last night. Like if they were alive today, that just the amount of shit they'd be able to write about in this forever. Um, would anyone like to read the next section? Speaking of. <laughs> just, just want to make one short point before we do that. Because, uh, Varun, you mentioned like the, the sign point in that and the way the subject passes through it. It reminds me too, like in terms of the second synthesis, the way that this um, the schizo has the, the ability to write the to to do the genealogy to trace it, but also to begin inscribing upon the the body the organs. In the same way, I think that kind of speaks to what Brooks is talking about, where in some ways right now, part of the conflict, part of the displacement, is over the new story, the new myth being written. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Uh, um, oh shit, I was gonna say, I think I had a point there. Uh, uh, yeah, you're gonna have to give me a minute on that. Let's well, fine. Let's. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think with the sign point example, I think the best way to think of the subject passing through intensive states is like a graph, right? Because the body without organs. You see that image of those lines on the i think i just pinned it in the chat but those image of the lines in the dogon egg where the subject passes through it can like you know nietzsche can only become woman if he first becomes like the chief or something like that where he has to do that something where you have to go through these sign points on a graph all right i'm gonna go ahead and uh read off uh, the next paragraph and we'll slowly get through this. I think we're going to go over the two hour mark. Uh, just a warning ahead because I do want to actually try to get through some of this. We may save some for the review tomorrow. Uh, but what does it mean to say that incest is impossible? Isn't it possible to go to bed with one sister or mother? And how do we dispense with the old argument? It must be possible since it is prohibited. The problem lies elsewhere. The possibility of incest would require both persons and names, son, sister, mother, brother, father. Now in the incestuous act, we can have persons at our disposal, but they lose their names inasmuch as these names are inseparable from the prohibition that prescribes them as partners. Or else the names subsist and designate nothing more than pre-personal intensive states that could just as well extend to other persons, as when one calls his legitimate wife Mama or one sister his wife. Uh, I'm going to stop there. What? Uh, someone yeah, no one does there? that. I just if anyone wants to just later on, just I'm going to ask again at the end of this paragraph. No, that, like that. that is real. That is real. Okay, I occasionally have called my wife mom because I do it in front of my son. Like, mom, mommy, how are you feeling? Like that kind of thing. But, but that's not. No, I mean, name. it's. It, I mean, are, are they talking about it like an act of parapraxis, like almost like a Freudian slip? <laughs> no, it really depends on the culture. We do this here. You know, I'm French Canadian. I'm from Quebec, and we are descendants of. French You've people. called your sister your wife. 
No, no, no. But people, you know, people in a couple, if you look at elderly people, they will they will call one another mom or dad. So basically the wife will call her husband, dad, and he would call her mom. So that, basically, that one makes more sense. The sister wife thing is is a genuine question I have, though. So I, I will say to the, the mother thing, like Led Zeppelin does this constantly. Hey, mama. Right. That's one of Robert Plant's famous lines. And like Lou said, right, like Mike Pence calls his wife mother. So it's out there, man. OK, the the, the sister wife one. Uh, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, it is in this sense that we said we are always on this side of it or beyond our mothers and our sisters. Our mothers and our sisters melt in our arms. Their names slide on their persons like a stamp that is too wet. Well, this got erotic quickly. This is because one can never enjoy the person and the name at the same time. Yet this would be the condition for incest. Granted, incest is a lure. It is impossible. But the problem is only deferred. Is that not the nature of desire? One that desires the impossible? At least in this instance, the platitude is not even true. We are reminded how illegitimate it is to conclude from the prohibition anything regarding the nature of what is prohibited. <sighs> nature of what is prohibited. For the prohibition proceeds by dishonoring the guilty, that is to say, by inducing a disfigured or displaced image of the thing that is really prohibited or desired. Indeed, this is how social repression prolongs itself by means of a psychic repression without which it would have no grip on desire. What so, is uh, desire? Yeah, go you ahead. Mind, you, you mind if I jump in for a minute? Please. Yeah, so I think we should stop here for a second because one of those things is very important. It's the sense that social repression can only work if psychic repression is there to make sure subjects are docile in a certain degree, you know, that we're abiding subjects. And that's the role of psychic repression where social repression takes the primacy there. So I, I think with regards to the um, prohibition of incest, and I think we're turning back to Oedipus, what we'll see is that, so what will happen is that, you know, the the prohibition of desire, first of all, the prohibition of incest pro uh, creates like the falsified image, right? So that's what I wanted. And then once you create the desire from it, for, for, for like, you know, the desire for the mother, the prohibition works again, and it represses that desire. So it, it, it creates it, but it represses it at the same time. But I think what they're trying to say is that, you know, we can't tell these things because, I mean, they're, they're almost like feedback loops in a certain way. We can say the desire remains consistently possible. I mean, did desire, I think it's safe to say desire is constant and definitely possible. It's a matter of how it's being guided. Uh, they talk earlier uh, quite a bit about how repression effectively, it doesn't stop desire. It, it morphs it. It changes its direction, changes its object, ultimately. It's uh, a break flow. It's, it's always it, flows. It's always flowing. So uh, it's... So uh, just real quick, because it's, it's the point we stopped at, and I want to just talk about it real quick. Um, so the, the line here, for the prohibition proceeds by dishonoring the guilty, by inducing a disfigured or displaced image of the thing that is really prohibited or desired. So the thing that is really prohibited or the thing that is really desired, uh, as they've talked about in these uh, 
uh, these early societies uh, like the Dogans uh, is more the ability for their familial and alliance lines to expand. And that is either through marrying sister into new family, marry, uh, having child and extending the generations forward uh, through their filial uh, lineage. That's actually the desire. And the prohibition is to do things that stop that. It isn't so much incest that is actually the prohibition, even though that becomes the law. The, we assume we've placed the desire in the wrong place and we've misconstrued sort of the intention. Is that what they're talking about here? I think the real important question here is that what we're experiencing is not that of cause and effect, but that of, as Eugene Holland said it so clearly, it's about the three systems, right? That uh, a, a sign signifier, a sign signified, and a referent, in the sense that the the signifier, the signifier is the is the is, so example, the signifier is the prohibition of incest, and the and that's so this the prohibition of incest as signifier basically re- works as a repressing representation right and it and what it does is it it, it it creates a displaced representative which is essentially the signified and that's that's like so let's that's the distorted image of desire but what we're looking for and we can't find in this case is the referent which is the you know the true the true objective form of nature of i mean the true objective form of desire that's you know that's existing beneath these rep, these beneath these restrictions and uh, that we don't almost have access to in a certain way well, all right. So with that, I am going to really quick continue the paragraph because that is the literal next sentence. Um, indeed, this is how social repression prolongs itself by means of a psychic repression without which it would have no grip on desire. What is desired is the intense germinal or germinative flow where one would look in vain for persons or functions discernible as father, mother, sister, son, etc., since even these names only designate intensive variations on the full body of the earth determined as the German. It is always possible to use the term incest, as well as indifference to incest, for this regime composed of one and the same being or flow, varying in intensity according to inclusive disjunctions. But that is precisely the problem. One cannot confound incest as it would be in this intensive non-personal regime that would institute it, with incest as represented in extension in the state that prohibits it, and that defines it as that defines it as a transgression against persons. Jung is therefore entirely correct in saying that the Oedipus complex signifies something altogether different from itself, and that in the Oedipal relation, the mother is also the earth. And incest is an infinite renaissance. He is wrong only in thinking that he has thus transcended sexuality. The somatic complex refers to a germinal implex. Jesus Christ. Um, Incest refers to a this side of that, this side of, that cannot be represented as such in the complex. Since the complex is an element derived from this, this side of. Incest, as it is prohibited the form of discernible persons, is employed to repress incest as it is desired, the substance of the intense earth. The intensive germinal flow is the representative of desire. It is against this flow that the repression is directed. 
The extensive Oedipal figure is its displaced represented, the lure or fake image born of repression that comes to conceal desire. It matters little that this image is impossible. It does its work from the moment that desire lets itself be caught as though by the impossible itself. You see, that is what you wanted. However, it is this conclusion going directly from the repression to the repressed and from the prohibition to the prohibited that already implies the whole paralogism of social repression. This is a perfect example of uh, the paralogism of displacement. Yes. It's, 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 Go ahead. I mean, it's a sense that, you know, so you, you, there's the, so it's like, it's three terms, right? The repressing representation, which is the, so let's say that's the signifier of prohibition of incest, or when you're in the, in the analyst's couch, Oedipus, or, and then, and then you have the displaced representative, which is this, the signified, which is now that the, the way the, the way the desire moves as according to this image. So the prohibition of incest causes, so when, when incest is prohibited, uh, you have the desire, you have incestuous desire as soon as incest gets prohibited. And, uh, and let's also keep in mind, because they mentioned social repression and psychic repression a couple of times. And what, we're ha- what the prohibition of incest is, it's a form of social repression. But the only way we are corresponding to the semiotic system that's so manipulative is due to the fact that, uh, that, we, that we, we are psychically repressed. And psychic repression turns us into almost a docile subject, right? Psychic, the role of psychic repression is to cause us to desire more social repression. And so in a way, it's the, after, after the repressing representation of the prohibition of incest is recorded on, uh, you get a displaced representative of, of the signified, which is, you know, desire, incestuous desire. And, you know, what we don't have access to and what, what will be incorrect to come, come down to would be the referent, which is which is which is the which is essentially the you know this the, the syllogistic I think is the best word a syllogistic form of desire machines acting as a productive flows of desire. So Jack uh, uh, typed in the chat: uh, the desire seems to precede repression. Perhaps it gets more intense with repression, though. But as a paralogism, I wonder. Uh, I'm I'm hesitant to say that it's necessarily preceding. Um, I think it it there is a level where that's probably an accurate way to say it, but it feels like they're talking about things that sort of happen uh, almost simultaneously. Yeah, desires always assembled in the social field. Yeah, it, it, it exists only in social. So because of because we're always producing that and always doing that, the repression that comes with it basically it's uh, and I always like to use river and water uh, sort of allegories for desire and with anything in Deleuze. But the idea that a dam gets put up, it's not that the dam gets put up and then water, you know, starts backing up. The water is doing that the moment it happened. It's a, it's a thing that is part of the system as the system and machine, the apparatus is existing. Yes, but let me try and qualify that. The potential of what will be termed incest, that desire, I think, does precede repression. It does re- precede prohibition to that point, right? You can't repress what is not there. Uh, That is to say, I think what I'm trying to get at here is, um, it sounds to me like the territorializing machine in this inscription 
comes recognizes these sort of roles right recognizes things like father mother and that and there's a way that folds into itself but there seems to also be a kind of preservation that comes with the social machine in terms of a paralogism where i think the the prohibition of incest is part of trying to preserve right i think that's part of what the social and psychic uh, psychic repression attempt to do and that that seems to be where the paralogism really takes place but when one is with uh with their sister in this regard or in their example of calling your wife um calling your 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 wife mom or what have you i think there's a way in which if you actually go into the imminence of it there's a way in which these roles are not necessarily being enacted that it's represented in the sense that once you've transgressed the law on that that representation gets invoked as a kind of social or, or social psychic uh blackmail well on that uh the next paragraph i think actually gets really into the code of the flows and how the chains work uh would anyone like to read through the next uh, I, really, really quick though on this paragraph, I wanted to talk about um, this the 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 wet stamp sentence, like a stamp that is too wet, um, because I think that the type of incest that they're talking about is something that like isn't typically exactly like it's not exactly the same thing as that stepsister porn, right? Because they say um, they say uh, what do they say? Yeah, okay. Now in this we have persons at our disposal but to lose their names and especially these names are inseparable from the prohibition that prescribes them as partners right so the role of mother or of sister or father is inherently bound up for them with the prohibition that you cannot fuck them right or else the names subsist and designate nothing more than pre-personal intensive states that could just as well extend to other persons so or they're still your sister but you're just horny for you know, you could be horny for other people, right? It's it's about the body. It's it's pre-personal. Yeah, and that was what I was getting at, where, like, you can be attracted to a person, right? You can be attracted to a woman. And that's not necessarily you invoking the role of sister. Uh, but it can be, but it's not necessarily the case, which I think is where prohibition and that displacement uh, sort of work is to enforce that kind of role to have something to displace onto and to sort of, um, if you will, to sort of appropriate the uh, the recording on the socius. And that seems to describe to me the way that the territorial machine operates, right? It's, it produces these roles and it, it unites social and psychic repression. And then it, I don't know what it does next. I don't think it has to, but I think what they're getting into is a way that like the social structures can speak to trying to to trying to do that. That's what I'm struggling with is I don't think the social machines necessarily have to be repressive or fully repressive. Well, on that note, uh... could, could I could I say something? Uh, the uh, you know, when it says what's really prohibited and desired um you know the whole purpose of the uh incest taboo in the patriarchal system is to allow the patriarch to know who his offspring are 
that's the key point. And so, and so the the incest taboo itself, with regard to the sun, is like a short circuit in that. Um, and so, you know, and so, and so that short circuit creates these paradoxes, and and those are the disfigured images and displacement of the image, of the the actual thing being prohibited is the uh, the woman having children with other men so that the patriarchal line is becomes muddied. All right. Uh, I'm going to read the next paragraph. We have uh, four more to get through. We may save some for tomorrow. Um, but I think the next, I'm just going to jump through because it's worth uh, having the conversation. Uh, is, my, is my mic still working? Yep. Yep. Yes. Uh, but why is the germinal implex or influx repressed, since it is nevertheless the territorial representative of desire? Because the thing it refers to, in its capacity as representative, is a flow that would not be codable, that would not let itself be coded, specifically the terror of the primitive socius. No chain could be detached, nothing could be selected, nothing would pass from filiation to descent, but descent would be perpetually reduced to filiation in the act of re-engendering oneself. The signifying chain would not form any code, it would only admit ambiguous signs that could be, that it, it would only emit ambiguous signs and be perpetually eroded by its own energetic support. What would flow on the full body of the earth would be as unfettered as the non-coded flows that shift and slide on the desert of a body without organs. For it is less a question of abundance of, or scarcity of a spring or the exhaustion of a spring, even the drying up of a spring is a flow, than what is codable or non-codable. Germinal flow is such that it amounts to the same to say that everything would pass or flow with it or on the contrary, that everything would be blocked. For the flows to be codable, their energy must allow itself to be quantified and qualified. It is necessary that selections from the flows be made in relation to detachments from the chain. Something must pass through, but something also be, must be blocked. And something must block and cause to pass through. Now this is possible only in the system and extension that renders persons discernible that makes a determinate use of signs, an exclusive use of the, disjunction, the disjunctive synthesis, and a conjugal use of the connective syntheses. Such is indeed the meaning of the incest prohibition conceived as the establishment of a physical system in extension. One must look at each case for the part of the flow of intensity that passes through, for what does not pass, and for what causes passage or prevents it, according to the patrilateral or matrilateral nature of the marriages, according to the patrilineal or matrilineal nature of the marriages, according to the general regime of the extended filiations of several alliances. It's interesting there, right? For the flows to be codable, their energy must allow itself to be quantified and qualified. It is necessary that the selections from the flows be made in relation to detachment from chain. Something must pass through, but something must also be blocked, and something must block and cause to pass through. In some ways, like that first part about quantification and qualification, uh, that even reminds me of like Marx uh, just dealing with the commodity 
and like use value and exchange value in chapter one of a Das Capital, right? Like the, economically speaking, there's a way that qualification and use come into being or come into valuation rather in the same way that quantification and exchange come into valuation, which seems to be important for code. And especially when we get into like what we talked about with the surplus value of code. I'm going to uh, think I'm going to make a semi-executive decision here. We are going to have to take a hold on the rest of this. Uh, I'm going to actually make us pause here. Uh, it's been a lovely two hours, uh, but uh, the rest of this is dense enough that it's actually stuff that we're going to be going over in the review tomorrow. So uh, please join us tomorrow. I will not be able to. I will be somewhere between Los Angeles and Portland. Uh, Should make your kid drive. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> two and a half. He can reach the wheel. That's good. Um, but no, uh, uh, please join us tomorrow to finish this section off. Uh, thank all of you guys for joining us for as much of this as you could. Uh, it's it's a hell of a section, and uh, it's I'm finally starting to grasp uh, parts of this that I really genuinely uh, smelled burned toast earlier and was just ready to die. So this is great. Um, thank you all so much. Uh, any last thoughts before we check out for the day? All right. Well, uh, thank you all. And uh, we will uh, chat soon. Join us tomorrow noon, same time, same place. And we will continue from let us return to the Dogon preferential marriage. Because why not dig deep into the Dogons? Mm -hmm.